You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 71, Nutritional Neuroscience. Today's guest is Orsha Magyar. Trained in both neuroscience and nutrition, Orsha's unique expertise brings an integrative approach to brain and mental health, as well as to science communication. She is also the founder and CEO of the company Neurotrition, which pairs neuroscience with holistic nutrition. We are pleased to welcome her to Minding the Brain. So welcome to Minding the Brain, Orsha. Thank you. So excited to be here, Kim. Let's get started just uh, a little bit for our audience to hear more about your background. I know we gave a little bit of a bio, but talk to us a little bit more about your career path. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. So I think like most people studying neuroscience, I started off by getting my undergraduate degree and I hail from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So for me, the obvious choice was UBC, University of British Columbia. And I started for my undergrad and did my undergraduate thesis in uh, working in a lab who studied temporal lobe epilepsy, which is a very specific type of epilepsy. And we looked at that kindling model, which means you know when you have seizures the more you have the more you get because the brain sensitizes it and gets hyped up and kindles or creates more seizures so I looked at that in a rodent model of temporal lobe epilepsy so that's really where my fascination and love of neuroscience and neurological disease in the brain began for my master's degree I hopped into the department of psychiatry and got really interested in looking at anxiety and studying the neural mechanisms or underpinnings of various anxious states. I looked all the way from single neuron or brain cell recordings and what happens in the brain under anxiety or when different anti-anxiety or anxiolytic medications are used, all the way up to rodent models, rodents being anxious, and then I even looked at anxious women and anxious teenagers. And then what did you do? You finished your master's in neuroscience and the next logical step is obviously the PhD, but what happened? Yeah, so I decided to hit pause, hit stop, get the heck out of there. I chose not to continue on to the, yeah, like you said, the standard next step, which would be to pursue a PhD, postdoc, and go into that very traditional line of academics and become a researcher and a professor. I actually decided based on, and again, this was 2009, so a long, long time ago, based on very limited, but nonetheless super exciting research, looking at a connection between nutrition and neuroscience, I decided actually to go back post-grad and study nutrition instead of that PhD. So that's where my, my schooling took me into the field of nutrition. So you finished your master's in neuro and then you did your master's in nutrition? I did a postgrad diploma yeah, in holistic nutrition, actually. Yeah, so went really on to the other side and chose to do that um, because of my, again, even back in the day, my feeling that kind of this precision or more personalized medicine where you look at individuals holistically, I, I felt even back in the day that that was going to be the future. So that's where I, I took it. And this was based on your love of food, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So in addition to really being in love with the brain and neuroscience and never wanting to kind of leave that behind, I also have an equal love affair and fascination with being a foodie and loving food. So I thought, you know, how am I going to, if I leave academics, 
How am I going to still keep my education in neuroscience? How am I going to maybe be able to do something I love that involves food? And for me, that logical missing piece or that really intersection connection piece was nutrition. Yeah. So you finish your postgrad diploma in nutrition and you're thinking, what next? How can I marry these two fields together? Now, I've known you for many years and I know this story, but let's tell it to our listeners. I know you felt like there was a gap and there was a glaring loss of information or even expertise in exactly that marrying of neuroscience and nutrition and ergo the birth of the term nutritional neuroscience. So tell us, what exactly is nutritional neuroscience? Yeah, so in 2009, I mean, I was like scouring PubMed. I was devouring any literature I could get my hands on. And this field at the time, quite new, called nutritional neuroscience really piqued my interest because it, as the name suggests, brings together neuroscience, study of the brain and brain disease, and nutrition, and how do we optimize or fuel the brain. Uh, so I started reading as much as I could, and at that time there wasn't much research there, but nonetheless it got me excited enough that I decided to, to dive in headfirst, go back to school for nutrition, and then I actually created a company, a nutritional consulting and science communication firm called Neurotrition, which I always get asked, like, oh, that's a really unique word. We've never heard it before. And I always tell people it's because it's a made-up word. I created it. It blends my two loves of neuroscience and nutrition into one word, neurotrition. So that's where I took all of this <laughs> education and, and experience into one word, neurotrition. Amazing. What are the main goals of neurotrition? I'd love to hear you talk about the evolution of neurotrition, where it's come from when you started it in 2010, and where it is now. And just uh, for the sake of posterity, we are recording this in 2023. So it's been 13 years. Oh my goodness, I know it's been a it's been a hot minute. So when I launched my business as a tiny little sole proprietorship in British Columbia, it was just myself and one chef. And my vision though, from day one has been unwavering and it has been to bring nutritional neuroscience research out from behind the bench, right? Like I was trained to be a lab scientist and I left that world, but I loved the science. And my vision was to take that incredible growing science and research in the field of nutritional neuroscience specifically and bring it to people's tables, quite literally. And that's where nutrition had to be such an important piece. So that's been my vision from day one and it is still the same to this day. I launched in 2010, myself and one chef. We've grown over the last 13 years to now a team of about 20 of us, including nutritionists, neuroscientists who sit on our science council, science writers, chefs, as well as all the business pieces like IT, development, design, creative, marketing, that sort of thing. What we do is twofold. We offer nutritional consulting services to clients who suffer from a variety of neurological disease and mental health imbalances. And we use nutrition, evidence-based nutrition programs and programs protocols, either as an adjunctive therapy, meaning in addition to their medications that we're working with, they're working with, with their primary healthcare provider, like their doctor, or sometimes as a monotherapy, meaning nutrition alone can move the needle and get results on their brain and mental health. So that's one arm of the business is as a kind of nutritional consulting company for these very specific types of clients. And then the other branch, 
that I've really stepped into over the last few years and I'm loving is the science communication piece, which for those of you listening in who don't know what is science communication or SciComm, it is getting this amazing, exciting research into the hands of people who are not researchers. So getting it out to the masses. Awesome. I just, I mean, all this is so exciting to me. I think even coming, you know, as somebody who has an education, I have a PhD in neuroscience and Marrying that nutrition piece, understanding how diet can impact your mental health and your neurological state, even, again, somebody that is well aware of, of the brain and the impact of, you know, the immune system, genetics on brain function, and so on, it's just mind-blowing how uh, we are now so much more aware of the impact of nutrition on brain function. And, you know, we know that when you eat food, it affects your mood, but to understand more about the detailed nutrients within those food sources, how it affects brain function, I think that's just wild. So I'd love for you to spend a bit of time talking about some examples of that for our listeners, because I know a little bit of the surface of some of these relationships, but I would love to learn more. And if you want, let's get started on omega fatty acids. What are they? What kinds of food contains them? What is the science saying about the role of these in your diet? So omega-3 fatty acids for you guys listening in in a nutshell are a very special type of polyunsaturated fatty acid and we can find them, we can take them as a supplement. You may have heard of omega-3 fats and seen them at your grocery store or health food store. We can also find them in a variety of foods, okay? So some of my top omega-3 food sources that we would build into our, we call it Neurotrition Rx or Neurotrition Prescription for our clients for better brain and mental health health are like cold water carnivorous fatty fish like wild salmon, black cod, trout is a great source, um, a little more less expensive more budget-friendly fish like sardine, mackerel, anchovy. These are great sources of the omega-3 fatty acids called EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, which is getting a lot of attention in the anxiety and depression space. And these fish are also a great source of DHA, decahexanoic acid. This one's getting a lot of research for things like post-concussion or traumatic brain injury recovery, reducing risk or progression of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, as well as the developing brain. Um, so little ones and things to think about as a mom-to-be. So these two, EP and DHA, are found predominantly in fish, as well as nuts, like walnuts, are a great example that I find is easy to remember for people because walnuts also look like the brain, uh, as well as certain seeds like chia, flax, and hemp. Um, so you can find uh, these omega-3s in a number of different foods and research even back in the day when I started looking in 09 and 2010 when I launched the business was already making a connection between parts of the world, people who live in certain parts of the world where they eat more of these foods had lower incidence of things like depression. That was the first piece of evidence for me that made me think, huh, there, there's a connection here. And the research has kind of just snowballed to the point where it is now. We see a role for N3s or omega-3s in almost all types of neurological disease studied and mental health. And it depends on, is it gonna be EPA or DHA that's better for your brain and different dosing 
that's found to be clinically relevant and effective depending on what's going on with your neurological health, but we know now, kind of without a doubt, that, that they, they help. Uh, there's even research looking at omega-3s can help optimize dosing of certain medications, right? Because for a lot of people, you're taking meds, maybe they're working, maybe they're not. If they're not, your doctor might be upping the dose. That's not always a good thing. We want them to work at the lowest dose possible. And we now have evidence to suggest and support that maybe for some of us, these N3s added on might help. So really, really exciting. This is so cool. And to restate it simply, what we're seeing is that what you eat affects your mental health. And specifically with the concentration of those N3 fatty acids, there's lots of big words in there. But anyway, it makes sense to me because so much of the brain's hardware, the neurons, the myelin sheath, the fatty layer that insulates the specific processes that extend out of the neurons is formed from these precursor omega fatty acids. So, of course, normal functioning of the white matter of the brain requires a certain amount of omega fatty acids. Absolutely, absolutely. For not only, like you said, building the foundation structure and strength of our brain and then also aiding its function. So I think that these healthy fats are being now shown to be important for both anatomy, right? The physical piece and then physiology, the function, right? And which is what I really care about, but both are so critical when you're thinking about the brain. And it seems like these good healthy fats, we call them omega-3s, they're good for both. Now let's talk more about some other potential beneficial nutrients or food sources. We hear a lot from the diet industry or nutrition industry about these so-called superfoods. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but the as an example, the SCI berry or ACI berry is sort of touted as a superfood as an example. So Orsha, tell us, is this real? Is it a trend? Is there such a thing as a superfood? So that's what's really tricky in any field, and I think nutrition's notorious for what is kind of a trend or a fad or what is actually legitimate. By definition, a superfood is something that provides a whopping amount of vitamins, minerals, and other, we call them phyto, plant nutrients for a reduced amount of calories. So by definition, we kind of refer to superfoods as such. And yeah, I believe that there are a few bona fide superfoods. My favorite example of a superfood currently is kale. And I think I can I can stand behind kale as being a superfood based on, based on that criteria. We know berries are a superfood because of the amount, uh, quantity and quality of things like flavonoids, anthocyanins, and other plant compounds they bring that are shown to be beneficial for the brain, which is my area of interest, but also for the heart, for other body organs and systems as well. So yeah, I believe there are some superfoods. This is great for me to hear because I literally stick kale in everything. I put it in pasta sauce, I put it in stir fry. It just kind of wilts down and my kids gobble it up, which is shocking because otherwise it's hard to get them to eat their greens. But uh, what I want to focus on is the Mediterranean diet. Now, I don't like diets. I don't like rules. And I think, thankfully, we're moving away from that sort of language. But if we're going to choose from a variety of foods that are available to us today, the Mediterranean diet seems to be one that's talked about as being quite good. So with that in mind, what is the Mediterranean diet? Is there evidence to show it's beneficial in particular for brain health and therefore mental health? 
Yeah, I agree with you, Kim. I also don't prescribe to <clears throat> necessarily any one type of diet or way of eating and certainly not excluding any food groups or types from people's diets. But if I were to get behind one of these diets, it would definitely be the Mediterranean diet for me for a few, for a few reasons. It's the most well-researched out of all the diets. It hails from the Mediterranean, so you guys listening in can think about, you know, Italian, Greek, those sorts of countries and the way that they're eating. This diet focuses a lot on, and I believe this is where a lot of its benefits come from, fish, which we talked about as being a wonderful source of those brain and body healthy omega-3 fatty acids. And Mediterranean diet, the other key important factor that I see in it that's lacking in the standard American diet, for example, are those healthy oils like olive oil, rich in monounsaturated fatty acids like oleic acid. So I think for these reasons, as well as the Mediterranean diet traditionally is devoid of a lot of processed, refined, junky foods. Even when, you know, I travel a lot and I love to see how people eat and people eating in the Mediterranean are still for the most part eating this way. What we see is when individuals in the Mediterranean and other parts of the world start to adopt our American way of eating, guess what happens? They start to see a rise of the same, we call them North American diseases that were not necessarily there or certainly not to the level that we see them. So, but yeah, Mediterranean diet, the fish and those healthy oils, predominantly olive oil. So lots of fish, healthy oils. And also, isn't that the diet that's considered more vegetables and less grains? They still eat, they still, they still do eat a little bit of meat in the Mediterranean, but it is higher plant-based, yeah. Yeah, it's considered when you, so when you look at the science and again, how I've kind of translated a lot of the research on things like the Mediterranean diet into what we do as part of the Neurotrition Rx for our clients, to me, it boils down to a few really key things. Uh, it boils down to anti-inflammation, right? You may have heard of the anti-inflammatory diet. So anti-inflammatory diet, yeah, you want lower overall fat, but you want higher of these good fats that we see really the, the Mediterranean diet excelling in um, and you want to see something that regulates your blood sugar that's another key piece for brain health reducing progression or symptoms or risk of neurological disease all sorts of things so blood sugar balancing and anti-inflammation are key and I think the Mediterranean diet does such a great job of, of addressing both of those and you've mentioned the SAD diet I love that acronym the standard American diet which is a diet that's high in heavily processed foods, things like chips, canned foods, lots of sodium, fast food. Is there research to support the fact that the standard American diet can lead to higher levels of inflammation in the body? Absolutely. Standard American diet is low in these healthy fats that we've been talking about today. It's high in the processed refined foods that unfortunately, because they're manufactured, they tend to be higher in refined fats and they tend to be higher in trans fats, which are very inflammatory. Um, standard American diet is low in healthy, what we call complex carbohydrates. The ones that it turns out are the favorite food of the happy, healthy gut bugs that populate your gut microbiome and directly talk to the brain through the gut-brain axis. The SAD diet is high in simple carbohydrates that your body burns through so quickly. 
uh, you know, standard American diet has quite a bit of protein, but the quality's not there. So again, for me, both quantity and quality of macros and food is, is really important, um, being more in the integrative space. And then like you said, it's just, it's processed and refined foods. Uh, so moving more into that space of diet being potentially problematic or how diet can influence more negative symptoms, let's switch gears and talk about brain fog. Now, I started doing some research looking into it because I did have brain fog after COVID, uh, which I think now from what I've read, brain fog is a part of a lot of inflammatory states uh, and even things like perimenopause and migraine. Um, and... When I was looking at the research, I was trying to understand what, what does the, the science say? Seems like nobody fully understands what causes brain fog other than, oh, it's inflammation. Is there more that you can say about brain fog? And are there things that might contribute to that state? Yeah, the brain fog is all too common, but not well enough understood at all. And I think one of the reasons there's a disconnect is there are so many root causes. Everyone's flavor of brain fog is different. I can speak to two anecdotally personally that I work with a lot, and that is brain fog due to dehydration, which most people have not heard of, that by the time you experience thirst, that is one of the last symptoms to tell you, your body and your brain screaming at you, telling you that you're thirsty. Before actually feeling that physiological thirst sensation, you're going to have things like brain fog. And the other underlying cause that I work with a lot and that we can actually reverse and nicely address um, is blood sugar imbalance. You know, you've all probably heard of the term hangry, <laughs> hungry, angry. When you're experiencing a drop in your blood sugar, you start to develop hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and with that come a lot of different symptoms, including irritability, maybe it gets harder for you to regulate your body temperature, you start having a harder time paying attention, or if you're at work, trying to remember things, um, and with that also comes brain fog. So to me, those are the two most common reasons I see is you're dehydrated and you're experiencing dysglycemia, or in simple terms, the blood sugar roller coaster. That's so fascinating. It made me think I should probably be hydrating after my runs because sometimes I do notice I get headaches and migraines uh, after long runs. So let's move, uh, switch gears a bit. I want to talk about traumatic brain injury or TBI and concussions. And I know that you're looking at the emerging research related to post-concussive syn syndrome, which is devastatingly common. And it is one of the questions I get asked by lots of friends and family members who've had concussions is what can I do? How can I support my wellness? after a concussion. So Orsha, tell us what is the science saying? What is the best thing to do? What do we know about the, di uh, the relationship between uh, diet and traumatic brain injury? Yeah, I do a lot of science communication on it because like you said, it's a <clears throat> really fascinating topic and a devastating topic because TBI or traumatic brain injury, every time you have one, it increases neuroinflammation, so inflammation in the brain, and that increases your risk of both depression, like you may have heard of post-concussion depression or post-concussion or TBI psychosis. And ultimately, unfortunately, TBI also increases our risk of dementia, such as Alzheimer's and related dementia disorders. So it's a very big, big topic that people are talking about. From what I understand, the biggest 
thing you can do if you've suffered a traumatic brain injury or concussion is allow the brain to rest, sleep. That's the biggest thing you need. There's something called the glymphatic system, which is your brain's version of a lymphatic system to help clear toxins and wastes from the brain. It was only discovered not so long ago, about 10 years ago. And we know that immediately following, within a few minutes of a TBI, that glymphatic system is damaged. So your body, and the glymphatic system, I should add, is working for us when we're asleep. So now, in someone who's concussed, they're maybe trying to sleep. You need to try extra hard to sleep and rest the brain when you're concussed to try and bring back that glymphatic activity to allow the brain to clear toxins such as beta amyloid, for example, which is the characteristic proof and diagnostic proof of Alzheimer's disease. So that is potentially kind of one area of research I'm really following intently is that connection between a brain injury and Alzheimer's disease and potentially a missing link is that glymphatic system and that beta amyloid protein you might have heard about. This is very cool. I think this is definitely an area of research that we will continue to see a lot of fascinating work come out of it. Totally. Another, I mean, another area I can speak to that I find absolutely fascinating with regards to the research in TBI is the gut microbiome connection. Within, within minutes, again, you know, you can look at someone with a TBI, their gut microbiome composition starts to change. And within a few days, we see that in patients who have had a traumatic brain injury, like a concussion, they're missing two important strains of gut bugs that in people who don't have a concussion have. So, wow, like uh, you're bumping, it's, it's wild, it's a pinch me moment for me. Um, you hurt your brain and your gut hears that and feels that and your gut starts to change. So that's what the research is saying. Anecdotally, what we see in our office is I get clients with a concussion and they say to me, and now it makes so much more sense with where the research is going, they say, I never had gut problems and since my concussion, I have chronic diarrhea or chronic constipation or even with some of them, they're like, yeah, within a year of my TBI, all of a sudden I've been diagnosed with Crohn's and I'm like, huh. So there's a connection, the gut and the brain are always talking and listening to one another. So that's another big piece that I'm fascinated by in the TBI world. So are there researchers that are looking at potentially prebiotic or even probiotic supplementation following TBI? Yes, and even yes, and even some research are starting to look at like, should we? Because there's a big problem is people are getting sent back and going back to work way too soon. They're not recovered. Like maybe could we look at, because there's also blood, there's also serum or blood indicators of a TBI. So could we look at people's stool or people's blood and actually be like, yeah, you're recovered or no, you're still not. So, so fascinating conversations. Yeah. So much cooler science. I don't know what the stats are, but most individuals are prescribed some form of medicine throughout their lifetime, right? Anything from heart disease, asthma, medicines that treat the brain, like antidepressants. And there's this emerging work on recognizing that medicine can deplete the body and potentially the brain of some key nutrients. And this is something that is unrecognized. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what your company has been doing and exploring in terms of how to reverse course or even shift the impact of taking medicines and how that affects your brain function? This is an emerging area in the practice of nutrition called drug nutrient depletion and it states and researches how different medications when taken over time 
are capable of actually depleting important vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients in our bodies. And so this is problematic for a few reasons, as you can imagine, one being that maybe these depletions caused by the medications might be promoting side effects of medications, right? So people now, their quality of life is affected, or worst case scenario, these people are very sick and need these medications, but they're non-complying. They're going off them because the side effects are too much. Um, and then another potential outcome of these meds is through these depletions, could they potentially be exacerbating and making the disease progress even faster or more aggressively? So I work in this field and we see what medications our clients are on. We are pro-medication if you need it and it works for you, we support that. We work in the background with our client's primary healthcare provider like their doctor and we help to optimize these meds to try and mitigate the, the drug nutrient depletions so that a client hopefully isn't getting a lot of these side effects, has a good quality of life, and can stay on ideally the lowest dose that's working best for them. Mm -hmm. And there's so many, there's so many examples, Kim, you know, like we know Vyvanse or Adderall, these stimulants that a lot of people are taking. I mean, there, I have so many examples. I could do a whole podcast just on that. But, um, you know, we know these stimulant drugs for ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, they, they deplete things like magnesium. Magnesium, yeah, magnesium we call our anti-anxiety mineral or our sleep mineral. So you can start to see like, okay, these medications can help a lot of people with ADHD, but we need to understand if they're now potentially depleting magnesium in some of us, then we need to do something to help these people sleep or not go down the rabbit hole now of anxiety as they're, as they're managing their ADHD symptomatology. So that's, that's an example that I see a lot. So a lot of people come to me and yeah, they their primary diagnosis is ADHD, but they've been put on meds. And now the reason for coming to see myself or my team is insomnia. So I'm like, okay, this potentially could be a solution. Let's see. And sometimes, yeah, that's it. So let's switch gears and talk about your big passion, which is food and science education. I think this is a really great space to be in right now as a science communicator myself. And I feel like it's kind of a side game or a side hustle outside of my primary job as an academic. But I really want to speak to you about this because you're so awesome in this space and you're doing so much great work on communicating to the public about nutrition in a way that's relevant, meaningful, and evidence-based. Now, I'm sure you're aware various social media, media platforms uh, are flooded with misinformation, disinformation, and it's really unfortunate. And looking at, at this as a scientist is really disheartening because you can see that the public is particularly drawn to these wellness charlatans because what do people want? They want wealth and health and they want quick fixes. So why do you think the average person is so drawn to these types of influencers? What can we do? What can you do? What can we do as science communicators? And in, namely, how can we attract attention to the facts and the science? That's a really tough one because the way that social media has evolved it's i think changed our brains so that now we have a hard time focusing on things that are longer than a few seconds long so we want we expect now to be given robust information in a really teeny tiny amount of time so that's something that's really really tough to to get around i also think people want 
quick answers and they want like a quick fix. We're very much in a band-aid culture. We want to hear like this food will fix this brain disease. And the truth is to me, when I hear a science communicator saying something like this food will cure this disease, that to me is an immediate red flag to not follow that uh, influencer or communicator. Because the truth is in the field of nutritional neuroscience, it is an emerging young field. It is full of unknowns. So while that may not sound as cool or as sexy or quick knowledge, quick hit info as saying like, here, eat this and it will fix this, that's just not reality. And I think it's unethical and just, yeah, really inaccurate and does a huge service to the field of science communication when a lot of people talk that way. Oh my God, they totally capitalize on our emotions. They make things sound really sexy uh, and they use language like cures instead of and and they'll say always and forever and they capitalize the vulnerability of people who are desperate and this is a horrible place to be in when you're suffering and wanting that quick fix so if you're listening to somebody saying oh this coffee enema will cure your cancer and they also happen to be attractive and have millions of followers they will be exuding this health halo which for those of you that don't have a degree in psych health halo is the belief that people who are beautiful are more credible than the average scientists so it's quite devastating yeah i think one way we can all kind of start to push back and overcome this is being transparent with people people really want information at the end of the day one way that i'm really mindful and intentional about being transparent every time i do science communication is i'm very honest and i say if something i'm talking about was done in a brain slice or in an animal or in a human i find a lot of people are not doing that and so you'll all agree with me you guys who are listening in like it's very different to say that this food or this vitamin helped a human with a brain disease than it was poured onto a brain slice of an animal and it did something so very very different and I'm very honest and open and I've created a following and brands and companies that hire me to do their science communicating also value that transparency so that's a way we're going to push back on those influencers who who maybe either don't they don't they may not understand the difference so how are they going to speak to that yeah that's great being overly prescriptive is a huge red flag oh 15 milligrams of this random supplement will definitely cure depression nope science science will never provide that kind of precision in terms of dosing and frequency and saying it will cure you and I think you're right. I think what we can do to push back against that is is to keep providing honesty and integrity and indicating nuance. And like you said, recognize when we don't know something and be transparent about it. Because um, we're always uh, aware that things can change. So if they're trying to sell you on something that is that quick fix and a, first, and a, and a certainty, be skeptical. Another thing too is, and this came with age, I've been doing this 13 years, this was, this was a more newer thing that I've stepped into and embraced, is leaning into your vulnerability. It is okay to say, I don't know. I would rather that than someone communicating science pretending they knew and it was wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, I don't know, I'm going to look into if there is research on that and get back to you. So there's strength in that as well. And I do this all the time as a prof. If a student asks a question, I say, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I can't know everything about neuroscience. Not yet. Anyway. So on the subject of rants, I know you do neuro rants, which I love. What are some myths about eating that you want our listeners to know? 
One of the biggest problems that I have is people following these really, really strict, I think often detrimental in the long-term diets for which no evidence exists that it'll do certain things. So for me, you know, the ketogenic diet, it's so popular and a lot of people come to me asking me to put them on a keto diet and then I ask them, because I offer everyone a free consultation and I will be very honest with you on what I can do and what I can't do for you. And when people come to me and they just say like, I want you to teach me how to do keto and I say, what for? And it's just, you know, weight loss, skin health, all these things like keto is very trendy. And what I say to them is, the ketogenic diet should be viewed as a medication. And what I mean by that is it can be very effective for certain conditions. We've got some evidence looking at certain types of pediatric or childhood epilepsy, some limited evidence for autism spectrum disorder in a short term and medically supervised manner. I don't believe in a long-term weight loss program going full keto when you're still eating sad or standard American diet foods. That's that's a big pet peeve of mine that I try and change uh, clients' minds around, is what are you using this for? Related to that, this podcast has a lot of student listeners. I'm so appreciative of all the students who have hopped on to the Minding the Brain podcast train because they're big fans of the work that Jim and I do. Um, and students are the ones that are often on social media and they're looking at some of these micro trends. One of my students today told me she's drinking chlorophyll because she saw that on Instagram. But the reality is a lot of students, uh, their diets aren't great. So they don't have a lot of time to invest in making good food. They don't have a lot of money. Money could be tight. They're also stressed. We know students have um, quite, a, quite a lot of mental health symptoms. And I do think some students are not making that relationship between their lack of nutrition and their mental health. So let's say you don't have money, you don't have time. What are the biggest recommendations for students? Can you give them a reason to invest in eating well? Yeah, so that's such a good question. A few years ago, my team and I developed a cookbook free, well, University of Calgary con contracted us, but for all the grad students at University of Calgary um, it was free. And we did a cookbook and it's exactly those pain points, Kim, that you just addressed. Students don't have money, they don't have time. And for some of them, it's their first time not being at home. So they're cooking for themselves. And what could we do? So we created these super simple, easy to make foods. And bottom line, I always like to follow the good, better, best rule. If all you can afford or all you have time for is good, then buy your Mr. Noodles prepackaged or, you know, type of food and add a tablespoon of chia seeds to it. That's good. Better, better is maybe make your own or buy your own bone broth and add it to those Mr. Noodles. And then of course, best is you can make your own bone broth. So those are like an example of good, better, best based on where you're at with your budget, your time, your skill, and your energy. Uh, because you can always bring in any little bit of brain food, no matter where you're at. So yeah, so we do, we do, we do a lot of that with students and yeah. What is something about food and nutrition that you've learned throughout your own work and research that has made the biggest impact on your own food choice? I've learned so much. One of the most humbling moments for me professionally and therefore personally was learning that the gut and the brain were connected. I didn't know that. I spent almost 10 years um, kind of in the more biomedical neuroscience field before I went into the holistic nutrition space. And uh, our Western scientific way of thinking seems was uh, still to a certain extent so siloed 
that the two sides here being the gastrointestinal, the GI, and then the mental health or the psychiatric sometimes don't do a great job of communicating to one another. So as I started seeing clients, I didn't know what was going on back in the early days, 2010, 2011, 2012, when I started seeing nutrition clients of why were they coming to me with a brain disease, but they're complaining of a gastrointestinal disease or symptoms, I didn't know. We now know that there is a connection, upwards of 80, 85% of people who have a mental health imbalance or neurological disease also have some sort of gut or gastrointestinal imbalance. So you can't deny the link. So that for me was a hugely humbling, <laughs> humbling moment as well. Here I am, talking about brain and mental health, I also need to understand and get up to speed on the gut and different gut diseases. And we can address both of them together because they are so interconnected. Feed your gut, feed your brain. Absolutely. With that in mind, where do you see the field going? What are you excited for? In 10 years from now, what do you think we're going to be talking about? What do you hope that we'll be talking about? I really hope that in 10 years down the road, um, we'll be using nutrition as really a part of everyone's. This, is, this might be like 20 years, 50 years down the road. I don't know when, but my goal is that nutrition becomes a respected, well-regarded, sought-after therapy. I'll be the first to admit it is for most people not the only therapy, certainly for their brain and mental health, but I do believe that it is an important piece that can really offer support and help for some people. And so that's where I hope this field of nutritional neuroscience research and its communication by people like myself takes it is doctors start thinking, you know, like can you imagine a patient comes in and they're complaining about brain fog and a doctor thinks in 10 years, Where's your water at? Have you thought about drinking more instead of right away re reaching down with their hand and writing that script um, for an antidepressant, uh, which we then know now is gonna deplete nutrients and things like that. So that's, that's my big, big hope is we just, we see nutrition as an equal player and we see exercise and mindfulness and breath work and all these things we didn't even talk about today as these adjunct modalities that people consider for their neurological disease or their mental health conditions. I feel like we almost need to go simpler. It's like we need to go back instead of moving forward with more complex answers. Like Occam's razor, I think, look to the more simple answer as opposed to looking at something for something that's more complex. So we have listeners all over the world. Uh, where can they find out more about you and neurotrition? Sure. So you are welcome to please come visit us <clears throat> on our website, which is www.neurotrition.com. Uh, .ca. Uh, you can check out, we've got really nice evidence-based, fully referenced articles, blogs, recipes. We're known for elevating your standard comfort foods and turning them into brain foods. So you'll see lots of really nice recipes there with a bit, bit of science communication on the key ingredients and why. You can email us at info at neurotrition.ca as well been a real pleasure having you on the podcast Orsha I learned so much and even though I've already had so many conversations with you I'm always curious I feel like I could listen to you for much longer and I could always learn more so thank you again for coming on Minding the Brain thank you so much Kim it's been an honor thank you very much Minding the Brain is gratefully sponsored by Carleton University's Faculty of Science if you find this show valuable and you want to support Minding the Brain Consider leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. 
Leaving a review or rating increases our visibility and helps new listeners discover the show. If you want to connect with Minding the Brain on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Minding the Brain. You can also find more episodes and show notes at our website, mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Minding the Brain.